You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know, you've probably seen these on TV, these ceremonial occasions. Maybe a politician digs some dirt in the ground and shovels it for the cameras. This is in 1904. George B. McClellan Jr. is the mayor. So uh, an interesting thing happens when he christens the first New York subway. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, in this case, Mayor McClellan was just supposed to, you know, get the control started and then hand it off to the qualified motorman. But here's what happened from the New York Times. October 28, 1904. Are we ready? Asked the mayor. All right, responded the manager, who kept his hand on the emergency brake lever. Slow at first, remember, mayor. The mayor's wrist shot out at about an inch and the train began to move at 2.35 o'clock. Slowly, it rounded the loop and entered the big Brooklyn Bridge station. The mayor said later that his knowledge of automobiling had helped him to catch on in a hurry, and as the train flew past the downtown stations, his confidence grew. But just as it emerged towards Elm Street, there was a violent jolt, a sudden stop, and the passengers were thrown forward as though the train had struck an obstruction. The train shot forward over switch to the express tracks, and it was passing through the Worth Street station before those who were watching the motorman became aware that the sudden stop had been due to his emergency brake. What's up? asked the mayor. It's all right, said the manager. Turn it the other way. The silver controller's bad fit caused it to come in contact with the brake lever when the mayor had turned it too far to the left, and Mr. Headley had made a quick readjustment. Shall I slow her down here, the mayor said, as they got to Spring Station. You're going slow enough, was the reply. But aren't you tired of it, Mr. Mayor? Don't you want the motorman to take hold? I'm running this train, the mayor said. The manager never let go of the brake control. It looked like the mayor was able to take care of things alone. Eventually, the mayor gets up to control, and the train goes from City Hall Station all the way up to 146th Street. In 26 minutes. By the way, that's faster than it probably goes now. That's definitely faster than it goes now. Though it's been a while for me. I just remember walking by and seeing a plaque that uh, was dedicated by Mayor George B. McClellan. I was like, that's the Union General. And I know that the Union General was the governor of New Jersey. I didn't think he was mayor of New York. And of course, it turns out that that is his son. His son is born in Europe after the Civil War, after McClellan is Union General, goes to Princeton, gets involved in Democratic politics. And it's one of these things. I I was a bit fascinated by the story. The Bowery Boys, who do a great podcast on New York City history, talk a lot about all the mayors, including McClellan. And 
I also found that he wrote a book, and it's an interesting book to go through. It's called The Gentleman and the Tiger. The Tiger is Tammany Hall, the New York political organization that at first McClellan rose with, but then got on the wrong side of. Here's the Bowery Boys about uh, George B. McClellan Jr. as mayor. Perhaps no mayor of New York City this side of Fiorello LaGuardia has ever overseen so drastic a change to the landscape of the city. For six extraordinary years, he presided over the openings of the New York Public Library, Chelsea Piers, Grand Central Station, christened the first subway service, and licensed the first taxi cab. But as the Bowery Boys explain, it's actually the movie houses and George McClellan's action towards them that is, is the way that he's remembered most. Nickelodeons and amusement arcades spring up across the city. McClellan may be opposed to this new medium. He may, as the Bowery Boys suggest, be gunning for a job at president of Princeton. He did end up on the board there, and he has to stand up for morals to do that. He tore up the licenses of 550 movie theaters overnight. And you have to remember, movie theaters at the time weren't all buildings like movie theaters. Some of these Nickelodeons were in, in taverns or in restaurants. And didn't reinstate them till a New York board of censorship was put in. I think it's a different view of history to read his perspective, because that's not normally how the history's written. We don't know if he's really right. And he defends his father, of course. The famous story where Lincoln appears in George McClellan's house and George McClellan doesn't come to answer. He doesn't come down. You know, we probably all heard that story. His son refuses to believe that that ever happened. He says that his father always denied that it happened. He said that his father did not get along with Lincoln. That much is true. But that he was solidly for the war. He had to remain a Democrat. It was his party. Didn't agree with Lincoln's actions and how he prosecuted the war. But he was uh, loyal, patriotic, and soldiers loved him. And all through McClellan Jr.'s career, he's going to benefit, of course, from the love that many former soldiers still had for his father, particularly in uh, New York State. And uh, that's going to make him a uh, candidate for mayor. He really enjoys being a congressman. He works with um, McKinley and Republicans at certain times. Like once the Spanish-American War starts, he doesn't like it. And he thinks, obviously, it's the newspapers who started. And uh, I've got a little passage on that. The Spanish-American War was fought very largely in and by the newspapers. Not only were correspondents present everywhere, but their dispatches went through uncensored. Generals, admirals, and even colonels had their official or unofficial press agents and their favorite correspondents and strove increasingly featuring this or that man at the expense of the rest. So that it was not until long after the war was over that the actual facts were developed. Moreover, as soon as the peace came, the newspapers were filled with criticisms by those who thought that they had not received their due. At the start of the war, I'd reached the conclusion that it was my duty to support the administration through thick and thin. The great majority of Democrats were of the contrary opinion, and under the leadership of Joe Bailey of Texas, constantly voted against appropriation bills for the support of the Army and Navy. I organized a bolt from the party, which the newspaper men called the McClellan Democracy. 
We started in over 30 song, strong, but the constant pressure of the Democratic leaders was so great that before peace came, the McClellan democracy had been re- reduced to John J. Fitzgerald of New York, John F. Fitzgerald of Massachusetts, and myself. We may not have accomplished very much, but we preserved our patriotism and our self-respect. So, you know, he's a very independent-minded Democrat, and this is going to ha- be the case when he gets to be mayor of New York. And he's at first backed by Tammany because he has this great name. He's young. He's bright. Um, people like him. You know, he's obviously going to win the election. He beats an incumbent mayor, Seth Lowe. And Tammany Hall, the dominant political machine in New York, who he had always been sort of loyal to, but never really had to reckon with much as a congressman. Now he becomes mayor and they set in and says, well, appoint this person, appoint that person, appoint this person. And at first he's as loyal as can be. He, he doesn't like a few people and, you know, passes on them and gets in a little trouble immediately with the boss. This is a time of great change in the city of New York and McClellan's mayorship is going to coincide with the building of the subway, the construction of a great aqueduct from the northern counties of um, New York. Well, north of the city is a better way to say it, the Croton Reservoir. And it's going to, using gravity, bring water down into the city, fresh drinking water for a growing city. Both of these projects are going to be super important, but also rife with the you know, if they're not run well, if they're run by incompetence, they're going to waste a lot of money. Um, McClellan is the mayor who takes the first ride in the subway. Apparently, he wouldn't let go of uh, of the levers and, and wanted the car to go faster and faster. He's also going to be mayor at a time where the city starts developing traffic rules because now you have horse-drawn carts still, but you also have automobiles uh, starting to happen early on in, in the city um, where there's enough money to afford such things. You also have streetcars to man, you know, and trolleys to manage. So he's the first mayor to institute kind of a traffic rules that are organized. He has trouble getting, um, getting uh, police officers to enforce and judges to enforce violations of these traffic laws and he finally has to haul judges in and say you're not going to be reappointed if you don't start enforcing the law um he also regulates saloons and movie theaters during his time he's one of the uh first to do so it's very likely that george mcclellan jr is not going to be renominated for office except for one thing his opponent is William Randolph Hearst. And Hearst hates Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall hates it. And they have no one else that can beat Hearst except for this popular mayor. So Tammany Hall now, the boss, Charles Murphy, doesn't like McClellan either and basically shrugs and says, okay, I'm not going to argue with your nomination, but you know, I'm not going to help you either. You're going to have to get elected on your own. He very closely has to defeat both Republicans and the independent candidate of Hearst, which sort of are working in league, and the Republicans and Hearst are taking some Democratic votes, and he very narrowly, maybe by 40,000 votes or so, wins uh, re-election as mayor. And then he's 
sort of more independent and starts to build his own organization. He has in his control some of the borough bosses, including the boss of Brooklyn, a man named uh, McCarran. That's uh, very loyal to him. And he starts to try to build his own organization. That's not Tammany Hall. But in the end, as the years go by, it, it shows you just can't beat an organization like that because long-term people are loyal to the boss, Charles Murphy, and they know that eventually this McClellan kid will be out as mayor which he is, and he's replaced by a state Supreme Court judge, William Gaynor, who becomes uh, mayor after he. McClellan Jr. will, you know, um, have a, uh, uh, a long, you know, will be involved on the periphery of things there for, for a long time. He gets into a lot of trouble right before World War One because he kind of writes a book that, that says that, Germany's not so bad and that we should, you know, it's an anti-war book and he is not well regarded for that reason. Kind of a lost voice in history, but pretty interesting and some interesting stories. And also just particularly when you get into the time of, um, say, Cleveland, Wilson, and McKinley, he has some different portrayals of all three of those people. Woodrow Wilson was in the habit of saying, I can never remember small matters of detail. I had an excellent proof of this. He wrote me asking me to appoint as police magistrate a friend of his, formerly of Baltimore, whom he had said he had known most favorably. As he seemed to fill all the requirements, I appointed him. Not long afterwards, he was charged with selling decisions. I sent for him and told him that unless he once resigned, I should seek his removal, whereupon he sent me his resignation. The newspaper severely criticized me for having made the appointment. I told him I made it at the request of the recommendation of President Wilson of Princeton University, who made the statement to the effect that he had never heard of the man and knew nothing of the matter. Fortunately, I had Wilson's letter, which I gave to the press. Wilson was very thrifty. Soon after he became governor of New Jersey, he appealed to the legislature for an allowance for the support of a motor car. The legislature granted him $3,000 a year for that purpose, which he drew and never kept a car. He had the salary of the governor raised from 5000 to 10000 annually and induced the legislature to enact a law pensioning the widows of ex-governors at the rate of 1500 a year. The trustees of the Carnegie Pension Fund for the college professors consists of various college presidents who, despite the near collapse of the fund, have kept unchanged the rule that grants ex-presidents full pay for life. One of the committee told me that when Wilson became governor, he applied to the trustees for his pension and felt very much outraged when they refused his application, telling him that he might renew it when he found himself out of a job. That story comes out in the Evening Sun in 1911 and is used in an effort to undermine his campaign for Democratic nomination for president. He talks about, for instance, how you know Wilson, as the president of uh, Princeton, really annoyed Grover Cleveland, who was sitting on the board of Princeton because there was an issue of some reforms that Wilson wanted to make. Cleveland was against it, and Cleveland had been traveling, and Wilson said, don't worry, we're not going to decide on this at this meeting. And, of course, they did, and so Cleveland wasn't able to. He felt that he was deceived and probably was. Oh, here's how Cleveland treated his father, George McClellan. Uh, in 1884, when Cleveland was nominated for the presidency, 
What few Democrats there were at Princeton organized a Cleveland and Hendricks Legion and Drum Corps. George McClellan Jr., son of the general, is going to Princeton at this time. As I had been in military school, I was elected adjutant and... Oh, let's go anyway. We made night hideous by marching around campus in the cause of democracy. Before election, we were invited to join a democratic procession in Trenton and paraded 35 strong. After the election, we paraded again. This time... Such is the hardening effect of victory. The whole college turned out, and we paraded Trenton nearly 400 strong. The state committed, committee furnished us with oil cloth, with oil cloth caps and capes and torches, and after the parade gave us a feed of ham sandwiches and beer. We had a glorious time. Such was the election of 1884, where Cleveland wins, first Democrat elected since... Andrew Johnson, well, really, really, you can say since James Buchanan in 1856. My father took a tremendous interest in the campaign and at once offered his services to the National Committee, which kept him very busy all summer, speaking all over the United States. He saw Governor Cleveland from time to time and received what he considered positive assurance that in the event of Democrat success, he would be appointed Secretary of War. This immensely pleased him, for he thought that such an appointment would be a final answer to all his critics. It's a safe rule in politics to never count one's chickens until they're hatched. Had my father followed this rule, he would have been saved a great disappointment. My mother, assuming that my father was as good as appointed, announced to all and sundry that she was going to the inauguration and did not deny her expectation that my father would be the next Secretary of War. She made up a party, and rooms were engaged at the Arlington long in advance, and we were irrevocably committed to being in Washington on the 4th of March. But immediately after the election, my father received a letter from Governor Cleveland, in which he said, I can never be grateful enough to you for all that you have done for me. I can never repay all that I owe you. My father took the letter as seriously and thought the matter of his appointment was settled. But after the letter... Nothing. No invitation to call, no asking of advice, no communication of any kind. Apparently, as far as Grover Cleveland was concerned, George B. McClellan, having served his purpose, had ceased to exist. Some weeks after the inauguration, on returning from a walk, my father found a telegram, which, having read, he handed to me. It was as followed. Russia is a first-class mission. Will you accept it? Secretary of State Thomas Bayard. I am so sorry, said my father, that there had been any delay in answering this, and at once sent the following reply. No, thanks, with a twinkle in his eye said to me, they can take my answer as they please. We learned later that my father was the sixth to whom the Russian mission was offered. Years after, I learned that Cleveland had wanted to give him the job, but Senator John McPherson of New Jersey had come to him and said, New Jersey has nothing to ask in the way of patronage, but serves notice that if McClellan's name is sent to the Senate, I shall use senatorial courtesy to defeat its nomination. There is nothing for me to do under the circumstances, added Mr. Cleveland, but to drop McClellan from consideration. But he should have explained the matter to him. Had he done so, my father would of course understood. 
All of this had to do with a squabble in New Jersey because McPherson had backed the other candidate when George McClellan, the general, not his son, becomes New Jersey governor in the 1880s and does one term, who, just like his son as mayor, was very independent, didn't listen to the bosses, and um, didn't develop much support thereafter. When I served in the House, the sectional lines between North and South were very sharply drawn. I began my service just 30 years after Appomattox and found among my fellow members a great many who had been soldiers of the Confederacy. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The horrors of Reconstruction had only ended some 18 years before and were a vivid and bitter memory memory in the heart of every Southern representative. Unlike the Scots, who gloried in being called rebels, the Southerners in Congress violently objected to having the Civil War referred to as the War of the Rebellion. They themselves always spoke of it as a war between the states, and from time to time one or another of them would make a little futile effort to have that expression substituted for the official designation, the Civil War. They all regarded Republicans as possible ex-carpetbaggers and called them radicals or damned Yankees. So we're arguing about statues these days. In the 1890s, they were still figuring out what to call the Civil War. The Democratic Party in the House was then, as it always has been, in the Civil War until lately, absolutely in the control of the South. 
Randall and Rainey Northern men were elected speaker by the grace of the South, and occasionally a Northern man has reached an important chairmanship. But in the vast majority of cases, when the Democrats have been control of the House, the speakership and all the important chairmanships have been filled by Southern men. In the same way, Southern policies have until lately usually dominated the Democrats in Congress. The Southern prejudice against Republicans is reflected in the attitude of the average Southern congressman towards the Northern Democrats. I soon found that we were tolerated, but not loved. So even within his own party, he's not a Republican. He's still getting a little skepticism from the Southern Democrats. The South has been glad enough to use the North in furthering Southern policies and Southern schemes. Southern men have been glad enough to migrate to New York and carpetbag in the most approved way and to organize and utilize the Southern vote for all it is worth in forcing New York leaders to give offices to Southerners. On the other hand, the South, for some not very apparent reason, has looked down on the North, expected Northern Democrats to do its bidding, and in Congress, given them only grudging neck recognition. Legislation affecting New York has always been difficult to obtain, and has required for its success a great amount of log rolling. Think of that as pork. To induce Congress to pay the deficit of the Buffalo Exposition due to the McKinley murder, You'll remember William McKinley ex- was assassinated in 1901 in Buffalo during an exposition, which then, of course, got canceled at great expense to the city of Buffalo. Our delegation had to vote for similar legislation in behalf of state expositions in the states of Washington and North Carolina. No assassination had taken place there. The typical Southerners, I knew him in Congress 40 years ago, had in his outlook as parochial as parochial as any man in the United States. For him, the world was bounded by the Mason-Dixon line. South of that line were white men. For the black man, he uses another term I won't use, did not count. To the north of that line, and by the way, when he's using that term, he's using it in quotes, talking about the way the other Southern Democrat members say it. To the north of that line and beyond were nothing but barbarians. If he failed to recognize that great truth, he would not be reelected. I remember Jesse Stallings of Alabama saying to me, I wish that I could see Europe. Why don't you go, I replied. If it were known that I had gone abroad in my district, safe as it seems, would turn me down. The average Southerner's attitude on black citizens is to a northerner difficult to understand. He regards them as a man belonging to an inferior race to be kindly treated, but to be treated as he was in the slave days. It is claimed by southerners, at least by those in the deep south, that the that they can only be kept in subjugation by the fear of lynching. I've often been told by Southerners living on plantations that they never left their women folk at home without the greatest anxiety. This is how he's describing the Southerners are saying this. In the 56th Congress, in the 56th Congress, there were two black members, both from North Carolina, named Murray and White. White and Murray always lunched by themselves at a little table in the corner of the restaurant. There was great excitement one day among the Southerners because a white member had been seen lunching at the same table with them. The most bloodthirsty plans were discussed, and it was even suggested that a Democrat should be chosen to tweak the nose of the offender. Fortunately, for the peace of the House, nothing ever came of it. 
The occasional white Republicans who came to the House from southern states were treated very much as black congressmen would be themselves, since they were elected largely by the votes of black citizens. Even Richmond Pearson from North Carolina, very fine fellow and a Princeton man, was sent to Coventry by his fellow Southerners. The Southerners insist, as they did in slave days, that this question is a peculiar institution to be dealt with by the South in its own way, without the impertinent interference of the North, so McClellan writes. In my day, the Southerners still talk loudly of affairs of honor, and Joe Bailey, who's a congressman, once sent Speaker Reed a challenge, this we talked about on the podcast, called a cartel for some fancied slight. Reed walked up to Bailey and said, Joe, don't be a damn fool. That ended the affair. I was sitting in the one day in the Speaker's lobby with a half dozen Southerners who were telling me of affairs of honors within their experience. When there strolled a Republican member from Ohio, William B. Shattuck, who had made some study of dueling in the South. He listened for a while and then said, Can any of you fellows tell me of any real, honest-to-goodness duel of which you have personal knowledge? The Southern members at once, with one accord, began to tell of affairs of honor with which they were familiar. Shattuck, as each story was told, asked very searching questions and said, as he walked away, I noticed that in every case you fellows have mentioned, the victim was shot in the back or was potted from behind an ash barrel, a lamppost, or tree. You haven't told me, and you can't tell me, of an actual duel in which both men stood up with equal chances and fired at each other. Here's uh, how he describes his starting his term as mayor. Took me more than a year to learn my job thoroughly. When I had mastered it, I was familiar with the work of all the departments and was able to gauge accurately the worth of the different department heads. My conclusion was that, with the exception of a few men, the department heads knew little of their work and that the departments were really running themselves under my direction. McAdoo, this is William Gibbs, McAdoo is going to become uh, Treasury Secretary later, as a police commissioner, was a failure. He had no control over the force, which was really run by the inspectors. It was only by supreme good luck that there were no scandals. The New York's police is a fine body of men as exists anywhere. It contains crooks, as does every force in the world, but I think it is no exaggeration to say that 95% of the men are honest. That's a very turn-of-the-century approach, right? You know, that means 5% are crooked, right? Uh, it's not so surprising to me that so many policemen fall from grace, as it is that so many remain honest. In a great city, the policeman is constantly subject to temptation. Money is actually forced on him by gambler, gamblers, liquor dealers, and prostitutes, and even the traffic cop must have a very stern sense of duty to refuse the Christmas presents that are offered him by rich and generous passers of his station. Every police scandal that breaks in New York is exploited to the limit by the press, which is very prone to compare a force with the Metropolitan Police Force of London, to the great disadvantage of her own. When there's a scandal involving the London police, the British press minimizes it. The American press does not. Despite his shortcomings, Amikadu deserves credit for having enthusiastically carried out three reforms I proposed for the police. We put him in new and smart uniforms, substituting the blouse worn by the Brigadier Generals of the United States 
for the frock coats the men had previously worn, and the army cap for the former unsightly and uncomfortable helmet. He weeded out the elderly, physically incompetent, walrus-mustached, enormously fat flatties who had made our force a joke and enlisted in their place young and active lads, many of them from the country. But best of all, he introduced traffic regulation. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Here's him talking about regulating saloons as mayor. In the old days, there were far too many bar rooms in the city, and the fault lay almost entirely with the brewers. Anyone who wished to go into the retail liquor business went to any one of the many brewers and was advanced the money necessary on his written agreement to sell only that particular brewer's beer. The brewer took a chattel mortgage on the liquor dealer's possessions and thenceforth owned him, body and soul. The brewers were utterly unreasonable, fighting every effort to reduce the number of saloons so that the city was covered with them, some city blocks having as many as a dozen. It was largely due to the grasping, ignorant selfishness of the brewers in Prohibition that uh, Prohibition carried the state of New York. I evolved a plan which I think, if adopted, would have greatly improved conditions, and he's implying maybe reduce the need for Prohibition. I propose that the number of saloons should be limited to one to so many thousand of population that licenses should be put up at auction and sold to the highest bidder. The licensee should be held responsible for the orderly conduct of the saloon. If a man were arrested as a drunk and disorderly in a saloon, the license should be suspended for a certain time, and on the third offense, the license should be revoked. It would in this way be altogether to the advantage of the licensee to see to it that no drunkenness had occurred in his saloon, and the licenses should be very expensive. It should limit the little holes in the wall, which always gave the police the most trouble. 
I submitted the plan to Murphy, this is the leader of the political machine Tammany Hall, in the hope that he might be willing to back it. He, however, would have none of it on the ground that neither the brewers nor the liquor dealers would consent to it. Um, one other incident I'll reveal in the book, since he, he had contact with so many presidents of this time, and Theodore Roosevelt would be one of it. His uh, mayorality is concurrent with Roosevelt's presidency for the most part. My, morali- my mayorality covered the last part of Roosevelt's administration at the beginning of TAPS. Of Roosevelt, I saw but little. When I was running for mayor, he, like one of his predecessors in the same spot, went out of his way in making a speech at Antietam Battlefield to ignore my father, apparently on the assumption that it would hurt me. It had precisely the opposite effect. This discourtesy to my father's memory made me votes. Recognizing his mistake, he determined to make amends and announced that he would deliver the principal address at the unveiling of my father's statue in Washington, May 2, 1907. He had an arrangement with the press by which the latter agreed to print his speeches as given out by his secretary. He used to speak extemporaneously, um, uh, his speech being taken down by his stenographer. When speaking, he seldom completed a sentence, a paragraph, or thought, and very often his spoken speech differed radically from what was furnished to newspapers. At the unveiling of the McClellan statue, he faced a large audience of veterans and began a very appropriate address. Suddenly, he was seized by an uh, inspiration. Turning around, he faced my mother, who was sitting in the front row, and his highest falsetto shouted at her, Madam, you are a good woman. My mother, who was very deaf, thinking that the president had suddenly gone mad, threw up her hands and screamed. Roosevelt, nothing daunted, turned back to the veterans and said to them, This lady has done her duty and borne children, and then launched into an impassioned oration against birth control, which was the fad of the moment. Yeah, I know. This is what you get out of reading some of these old books that aren't kind of written for modern times. You, you pick up on little things. I had no idea that, uh, you know, because uh, McClellan's not writing a book about Roosevelt and birth control, but it comes out in in, the, in something else, right? So he uses this McClellan statue unveiling to speak out against uh, um, women who support uh, birth control. Um, whenever he came to New York, Roosevelt, his brother-in-law, Douglas Robinson, preceded him and came to see me to ascertain what plans I had made for his protection. Robinson always insisted on having me show him a map, exactly what arrangements had been made for the guarding of the president's route from the ferry to his destination and for his protection during his stay. Roosevelt was brave himself, and obviously the overemphasis on police protection did not originate with him. The last time he came to New York as president was to the unveiling of General Slocum's statue at Brooklyn, where he, we both spoke. I asked my detective lieutenant, who constituted my only guard, to find out for me how many Secret Service men the president had brought with him. He reported that he had brought 35, and they were literally falling over each other. As we stood reviewing the parade, Roosevelt, who suddenly, suddenly turned to me and said, He is a damn liar. Who? Mr. President, I said. I had not the faintest idea what he was talking about. To which he answered, Your friend Alton B. Parker. Alton B. Parker was the 1904 candidate for the Democratic Party for president running against a very uphill battle against Theodore Roosevelt. I have wanted to say that to you for a year, and now I have said it. So there. 
During the previous campaign, Parker had accused him of receiving large campaign contributions, uh, which Roosevelt had denied by calling him a liar. When Grover Cleveland died, Roosevelt wired to Mrs. Cleveland, "'Am greatly distressed to hear of your husband's death. Hope funeral will not be on a Friday, as I want to go to the Harvard-Yale boat race that day.'" The funeral was not on a Friday, and he came. He was met at the station by Archie Russell, who was an old friend of his, as well as a friend of the Clevelands. Russell, who was greatly distressed by Cleveland's death, was much shocked when the president, jumping off the train, punched him in the stomach and shouted, How is my old college chum? Uh, so, you know, you have some unflattering stories. I, you know, that's why I just think it's good to dig into the old books and of people that aren't often heard from. He, you know, he can be an untrustworthy source. In fact, his own biography here um, has a lot of footnotes where the person who's actually helping him with it um, corrects certain things that they just don't have evidence for. <laughs> so uh, there's that. There's some talk about McClellan being chosen for president. This is particularly when he's in favor with Tammany Hall in New York. And he does address the issue of a natural born citizen. When I was a mayor, when I was mayor, there was from time to time a certain amount of discussion as to whether my foreign birth did not make me ineligible for the presidency. Those who held that it did had evidently not read the Constitution, which provided that the president shall be a natural born and not a native born citizen. While I'm not a native born citizen, there is, of course, no question but that my parents being citizens, his parents to the former head union general, and his wife, I am as much natural born as though my birthplace had been in the United States. He talks about being mayor. The Christmas before I took office, I was inundated with presents from pseudo-admirers who presumably had access to grind. One rather prominent lawyer sent me 550-cent cigars and four cases of champagne. I received enough champagne and cigars to have me supplied for several years had I retained them. I, of course, returned all of these presents with a polite note, saying that I was obliged to make it my rule to accept no present during my term in office. The only exceptions I made were to accept a bullfinch named Willie. It was from the German barber at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, who lived in my own election district, and who was an old friend. I found it had been the custom of my predecessors to accept free tickets and boxes at the theaters and at the horse show. This custom I discontinued. The only courtesy of the kind that I ever accepted was a permit for the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Anyway, I think there's a little thing to be said about all of that is that... uh, You know, one thing that unites us throughout the time periods is a desire for people in office who have character, who treat the office well, and who do the job. That cuts across ideologies and it cuts across time. Of course, there's different interpretations. There were certainly people, cartoon drawers, editorials, certainly all of the Hearst newspapers, who would tell you that McClellan was just playing around with Tammany anyway, even pretending to fight with it. Um, And that he was just as crooked as the rest of them. But then people that knew the story knew that he had stood up 
to the machine and really suffered for it. You know, his career suffered for it. And um, that is something that we still look for in politicians, like good guardianship of the office is, is, is a perennial issue. Uh, anyway, so those are a few little uh, sketches and stories. Um, Steve Mulready writes, Hello, Bruce. Just read a blur based on the life of David Rice Atchison. I also noticed that his grave states president for one day, yet there is not a presidential seal on his grave marker. What's your take on this? Well, thanks for the question. David Rice Atchison, yes, this is a bit of a little controversy, and one could debate it. It would be a very narrow technical point to say he was ever president for a day. And if you did, you'd have to probably say that we also had a President Joe Biden and perhaps a President Al Gore. First, the background. You know, but maybe some listeners won't. Zachary Taylor was not sworn in until the Monday, uh, March 5th, because it was the Sabbath day on Sunday, March 4th, when he should have taken the oath of office. But Polk's term had ended Sunday at noon. There was no vice president. So it is said that David Wright Atchison, president pro tempore of the Senate, was next in line, and thus was president for a day. In 1997, Bill Clinton was sworn into his second term, and I believe it was six minutes late. In 2009, President Obama said, at Chief Justice Roberts' behest, the wrong words in taking the oath. In 1963, it took some time, a little bit of time, for LBJ to get on the plane and to do the oath in front of a judge. Now, what if there was an attack during that time? I think it would be clear to everyone that Lindy should get the phone. But the real question is, if you don't take the oath and say those magic words, are you president? Here's what Article 2, Section 1 says. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take, as the president, shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I think the key words there are, before he enter on the ex execution of his office, which is very different from before he can be considered president, or before he can be titled president, before he is president. Simpler, before his term begins. That might be the way to say it. And that's not what it says. Those are key words for Mr. Atchison's case in history, I believe. There's a difference between being president and acting in office. Now, if Zach Taylor tried to do something in office prior to the oath, eyebrows might be raised. But he was president. He was elected. He had the mandate of the people. And his term had started. The clock had started. Just as Obama was. However, Atchison's fans, I note that Obama and Roberts did redo that oath on Inauguration Day, just in case. Now on the meeting that didn't happen, could Bill Clinton have solved Obama's problems? Perhaps. What do I mean by that? In 1994, a moderate bill was proposed by Senator John Chafee of Rhode Island, a Republican. Now, it had the support of a large number of Republicans, including Majority Leader Bob Dole. The biggest aspect which troubled Republicans in 1994, to the extent they were talking about the health care policy and not, the, not politics, was that the Clinton plan involved an employer mandate, 
and then it involved a, an extensive network regulated by the government. They proposed a plan, but it had two troubling aspects of this Chafee plan. One, it called for an individual mandate, meaning you must buy insurance. Every American must buy insurance. They can't afford it, we subsidize. And secondly, it was phased in over 10 years. That was not appealing to the Clinton administration that just been swept into office in 1993 when there was a shot at full health care policy. That simply wasn't going to happen, something that's going to take 10 years. Well, 10 years would have been 2003. George Stephanopoulos, writing his memoir around the time when the 10 years might have come up, lamented that no deal was made here. Might have had universal health care if Clinton had agreed to the Republican plan. Saw it as a missed opportunity. Republicans had a press conference announcing their health care plan. What if the president had gone down, walked to the Republicans, and so decided to support their effort? Well, Bill Clinton answered that question in his memoir, My Life. Could I have gone down there, appeared at the press conference with Bob Dole and Chafee, and supported the bill? Sure, he said, and Dole would have just pulled his support, and we would have been back to where we were. They didn't want to pass anything that had my name on it. That's Clinton's opinion. This much is clear. We are a long way from 1994, but the Obama plan, which is roughly based on the Senate plan, is stripped of the Medicare buy-in, stripped of the public option. It is the Chafee plan of 1994, which had the support of Bob Dole. If Clinton had appeared at that press conference and decided instead of engaging in the plan that his wife was constructing, obviously would have been politically and personally difficult at the time, although I'm sure Hillary Clinton would have been part of the decision. If he had, in a sense, turned against his party a little bit or pivoted against his own party who was supporting his plan at that point, and gone to the Republicans and said, I'm the president, let's cut a deal, I'll support this Republican alternative. I doubt that it would have been possible for Republicans to then turn on him the way that he said. Yes, Bob Dole probably with the politics of 94 would have wanted to. With a live TV moment like that, I, I don't know that it would have been possible. And therefore, I'm led to believe that Clinton could have saved Obama one headache. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.